Would you pray with me as we start? Lord, I do thank you for your leading, for your guiding, for your grace, for your loving and glorious provision for us. Would you now help us to see wonderful things in Exodus 17 and 18 this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come to lesson 11, our Redeemer's life-giving water and protection. Wilderness journeys are not new to Exodus, although the newly freed nation of Israel is experiencing the wilderness for the first time. You remember when Moses ran away from Egypt and he went into the wilderness, right? He trekked through the wilderness and he arrived in Midian. And we read in chapter two that he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters and they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and he saved them and he watered their flock. Does it sound familiar to this week's story? So this is not Moses' first rodeo, you might say. This is familiar ground for Moses, just as he defended the daughters of Jethro and he helped to water their flocks. He asked God now to provide life-giving water and food in the wilderness for the people of Israel. In chapters 17 and 18, they encounter their need for water, and they also need to fight off their enemies, just like Moses did. Israel is also going to meet Jethro, just like Moses did, and they're going to have fellowship together before they meet God at the mountain, and we're going to get to that next week. Like Moses, they're going to meet God at the mountain, and they're, they're going to get their marching orders, their commands, just like Moses got his command to go back to Egypt when he was at the burning bush where he met with Yahweh. We also see that in the process, the people are getting to know God by more names. Last week, he revealed his name as the Lord, your healer, Jehovah Rapha, or Yahweh Rapha. And now this week, they learn to trust him as the Lord, their banner, Yahweh Nisi. Just as Moses learned God's names, Yahweh, and I am who I am when he was at the burning bush. So I got to thinking, when I'm in trouble, does that usually bring out the best in me? Or does my faith falter? Well, in Exodus 17 and 18, the people of Israel face more tests and trials. And so I've divided these two chapters into four sections, loosely based on what their need was in that particular section. And then we're going to look at four questions in each one of the sections. Those questions are, what was the need or what was the crisis? How did they react to that need? And then how did the Lord, their Redeemer, reveal himself to them? And then the fourth question is, how do we see Jesus in these sections? Sometimes it's hard to see the connections, right? But this week, wasn't it glorious? Because the Apostle Paul gives us help in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So beautiful connection to Jesus. All right, the four sections, their needs are number one, no water. Number two, they needed protection. 
Number three, they needed some good news. Jethro needed the good news, that is. And then number four, Moses needed wisdom. So we'll start in the first section. No water appears to be their need. Now this should sound familiar. It was a legitimate concern. Millions of people in this desert wilderness would need a large source of water in order to survive. They would die within days if they had no water. But this is where God led them. Did you see that little phrase? They went there according to the commandment of the Lord. How did they react? Are they going to seek his help? No, they forgot God's mercy at Marah that they saw last week back in Exodus 15. They also forgot how the Lord led them to Elam where there were 12 springs of living water and all that, the palm trees, right? And the Lord has led them here now. Will he not care for them? As we just sang, all the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, and feeds me with the living bread. But the people complain. They're critical of Moses, they're critical of the Lord, not caring for them, not being able to help. They don't seem to remember how the Lord graciously revealed himself to them as, as their provider, as their healer. So they cry out, like many of us, if God is so good and powerful, why am I in this mess? They lack humility, they forget to pray. Instead, they accuse Moses, and this is beginning to be a pattern. You remember in chapter 14 they said, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Would that you have done to us, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And then last week in Exodus 16 they complained, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord back in Egypt. Okay, and you wanna say, really? But you remember what Pastor John Nolan told us this week. We like to identify with the heroes in the story, don't we? We need to identify with the people of Israel here because this is our bent, right? We're not Moses in the story. We're the ordinary Israelite people. Well, they completely forgot or maybe they ignored the provision of God in the past, the sweet water, the manna, the quail. They ignored the way God was their deliverer, how he brought them out of Egypt delivered them through the Red Sea. They, they forgot that he was leading them with the pillar of fire in the cloud. It was the Lord that actually led them to this very place. They're doubting what, that God has brought them here and that he cares. They even accuse Moses of wanting to kill them. So Moses cried out to the Lord. He said, what shall I do with his people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which with you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which means temptation, and Meribah, which means strife or contention because the people were murmuring and grumbling against God. So Masa means to test. Meribah means that contention, that quarreling. And so God here was testing his people. This is not the first time he has tested them. We learned that last week. But instead, they are testing God. They're accusing God. They're actually putting God on trial. 
The term that C.S. Lewis used was they put God in the dock, all right? They're judging God. And 1 Corinthians 10.10 sheds a little light on this. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. So in verse 2, they quarrel with Moses. They demand that God and Moses provide water, insisting rather than asking. And then in verse 3, they assume the worst, and they question Moses' motives, and they also question God's loving protection. And then in verse 7, we see the sin of unbelief. They're doubting God's promise to be with them and to provide for them. We see insight into their hearts here in verse 7 when they ask, is the Lord among us or not? Is he good? Does he really keep his promise? Is he real? Is he powerful? Psalm 78 confirms this. It says, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet God was gracious, right? He gave them bread. He gave them quail last week. God set a table for them in the wilderness, and yet they did not trust him. Their short-term memory seems to have been a problem. Psalm 106.3 says, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. So I got to wondering, how can we avoid having this problem in our lives? How can we avoid memory loss? Well, we need to continue to rehearse all that the Lord has done for us, to recount his goodness, recount his steadfast love, remember his provision for us and his protections to keep us from grumbling and complaining. We need to be people of the book. We need to be in our Bibles. Warren Wearsby said, every difficulty God permits us to encounter will become either a test that can make us better or a temptation that can make us worse. In this section, we see both the penalty for unbelief and we also see the solution. And we see this through the staff that Moses uses. We've also seen this staff as a means for leading the people, as a means for delivering the people, as in delivering from the Red Sea. But here it's referring to judgment. God says, take that staff with which you struck the Nile. That was judgment. So the people here are ready to stone Moses. But, in, but instead, in God's grace, God saved his people by submitting to his own staff of judgment, taking the judgment in Moses' place. God here is going to stand in as the substitute. The solution here is water from the rock. So God, in his infinite mercy, says, Moses, I am going to stand before you on the rock. God is standing there in front of the rock. And then as commanded, Moses strikes the rock and the water comes out. And we sang, though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. They're, they grumble, but God gives them grace. They doubt, but God gives them divine provision. So how did the Lord, their Redeemer, reveal himself to them? As their provider, number one. Psalm 78, 15 through 16 says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. 
He made springs, streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. He also revealed himself as their protector. So instead of punishing the people for their unbelief, God himself stands at the rock, was struck, and took the punishment so they could live. He also reveals himself to them as their ever-present Savior. They saw that God was still with them as their Savior, standing on the rock and leading them. So this is a beautiful picture of mercy and grace here. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, says, they drank from that spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. So how do we see Jesus? First, we see him as that rock. Repeatedly in the Bible, the Lord is referred to as a rock, or the rock, or even the rock of our salvation in Psalm 95.1. Christ, our rock, is struck. He's judged. He takes the wrath. He takes the punishment for us. You read that this week in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So God sends his son, Jesus, who takes on the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. He is our substitute. So the judgment is not poured out on us as we deserve, but on Jesus, our substitute. Romans 3 tells us that this was that so God could show his perfect justice, his righteousness, but also that he could reveal himself to us as the justifier, the just and the justifier. Without him bearing our penalty, we would have no peace. Without his wounds, we would have no healing. Without his thorns, we would have no crown. Without his death, we would not have living water or eternal life. Without his pierced side, we would have no forgiveness. He is the rock of ages that was cleft for us, split open for us. You know that old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me? I always thought about it as the cave, you know, the cleft that he hid in, and that's part of it. But he was, he was torn apart for us. He was split for us, cleft for me. So let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. We get mercy, we get love, we get protection and safety for all eternity. We get eternal life. We get living water from the rock. So how is Jesus the living water? I want to take a few extra minutes to set the scene for John 7, where you read this week in your lesson. When Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and you have a chart on the very last two pages of your workbook that summarizes the feasts. The Feast of Booths looked back and remembered how God provided living water from the rock there in the wilderness in Exodus 17. So God saw their physical need and he provided miraculously for them. And so the Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus were celebrating this feast. And these Jews would have been very, very familiar with God's supernatural provision of 
water, life-giving physical water from the rock. So living water in the Old Testament meant springing up or gushing forth, running water, flowing water, not that stagnant bitter water that we saw last week at Mara. The feast also praised God for the present provision of the harvest. So every year they would celebrate this feast to celebrate how God had provided for them. And they would pray for the year ahead. And this feast lasted for seven days. They were reenacting God's provision. And they would live in booths or tents to celebrate that. And they still do that to this day. They would remember their time in the wilderness. So one of the rituals that they had, that's not mentioned in the Bible, but was included in oral tradition that was passed on from Moses, it's called water festival or the water libation or drink offering. So each morning during this festival for seven days, they would, they would start at the temple and they would hike down with a golden pitcher and they would fill it up at the pool of Siloam. This was considered to be living water. It was a spring. They would carry this water back up to the temple where there was a large bowl that would sit on the altar. When they got there, the part of the celebration was that they would pour the water in and they also had wine that they would pour in together into this large bowl. Then once that was there, it was all filled, then the priest would pour it over the altar as an offering. So they did this for seven days. And then on the seventh day, the final day, before they poured it out on the altar, they would march around the altar for seven times. Does that sound familiar? Okay, remember the people of Israel when they marched around Jericho. So they were celebrating that God was their sovereign, powerful deliverer, okay? So the feast, this feast, this celebration, also looked forward to the future. Zechariah 14, 8 says that when the Messiah, you know, when, the, when uh, all is accomplished, all right, God's blessing would be poured out on the nations. Living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. So they looked back to the Old Testament. They were celebrating at the present, but they were also celebrating what was going to happen in the future. So this is a scene of John 7. Very God, word become flesh, Jesus stood up to speak to his people. And so this feast, the whole water drawing ceremony, everything was about him. It pointed to him, but the people didn't know this. So on the last day of the feast, the seventh day, this is, this is John 7, 37, on the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the promise of the Spirit. You read that. So it's into this spiritual desert that Jesus came and he offered them a drink from himself. He offered living water so they could live spiritually, just like the, their fathers were enabled to live physically after receiving the physical water. So Jesus here is claiming to be that rock, okay? The rock that Moses struck in the wilderness. So this shows us just the beautiful, beautiful picture of God's desire and ability to provide for our spiritual need that we might not remain dead in our trespasses and sins. So can you imagine a more clear picture? Jesus is saying he was the source of physical water in the Old Testament. He's the source of spiritual water in the New Testament. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. So we rejoice today knowing he 
has given us his mercy. We can rejoice in his provision, his sweet provision. You remember at the cross, in order to confirm that Jesus was dead, the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and out flowed blood and water. That's John 19:34. Blood that was shed for our sins and water that showed that by his sacrificial death, he gives life. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed, mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Jesus is our thirst quencher. So if you have not done that already, just acknowledge your sin and thirst and receive that forgiveness. Drink of his mercy, turn from your sin. This living water will never run dry. It cleanses, it refreshes, it renews, it fills, it satisfies us. God is good. He is real. He is powerful. So run to Jesus, the rock. Back to Moses. The people, remember, were about to stone him, and the Lord intervenes. I got to thinking and wondering, if Moses knew what he was actually doing do you think he could have done it? When God says, I'm going to stand before you, strike me? Do you think Moses could have done it? I got to thinking, you know, I, I don't know. But God himself here was standing at the rock, submitting to the judgment so that life could flow to his people. So like the rock, Jesus was struck. He bore the curse of sin for us in our place, saying, strike me, Moses, strike me. You might be familiar with another episode. It might be confusing, but later in the, their journey, this is two years from now, the people arrive at a place called Kadesh, and a very similar thing happens. They don't have any water. And this time, Moses prays, and God instructs him. He says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. So Moses gathers the people, and then he proclaims, Hear me now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. So Moses did not trust God's power to provide through the miracle of speaking to the rock this second time. And for this he was prevented from leading the people into the promised land. Christ died once for all. He was struck once. He is not struck repeatedly. So Moses is not permitted to enter the promised land. Okay, section two. We're going to go a little bit more quickly through these next sections. In this section, the newborn nation of Israel, as redeemed slaves, they learn how vulnerable they are. Up to this point, the enemies that they faced were inside. They were in their hearts, right? They battled distrust. They battled discontentment, discouragement. But now they face an enemy from outside. 
So their crisis is that the people of Amalek come and they fight with Israel. So Amalek was a grandson of, of Esau, and we learn in Deuteronomy 25 that these people targeted the weak and the helpless stragglers at the back of the line. They attacked the defenseless, probably the women and the children. For us, likewise, we can expect spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, battles along the journey that we travel in our wilderness in this world. But we have to remember that Jesus has already defeated the spiritual forces of evil. But like some Japanese soldiers after World War II that were in the Philippines hiding for 50 years and didn't know World War II was over, they keep fighting. Okay, our spiritual enemies keep fighting. But we're told that we need to, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So how did the people react here? Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight. And then Moses said, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. We've seen how the staff represents his power, God's power and protection. Here we see Moses in a posture of dependent prayer with the staff of God in his hands, his hands raised, interceding for the people and interceding for Joshua as he fought. He was appealing to the Lord to, to shower, to show down his mighty power to protect and defend the people of Israel. And we don't have a lot of details here. Maybe that's to emphasize the point that it's God who is our defender and our protector. The battle is his. For us, we have the privilege of being able to go directly to the Lord for his help. Hebrews 4 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Prayerlessness is going to lead to lost spiritual battles. Ask God to defend you. Ask for help. Even if we fight bravely like Joshua, we may lose the battle if we don't pray like Moses. Spiritual victory is from the Lord, and we're utterly dependent on him. So when God fights for us, he gets the glory, not us. So the weakness of Moses points to the fact that it was not the military strength or the genius of Joshua, but it was God who was fighting for them. Moses had to have help, remember? He had help from Aaron and her to hold his arms up. Don't we sometimes need help from our sisters in Christ when we're going through a really hard time? Someone that'll text us and say, I'm praying for you? Yeah. Well, how did the Lord, our Redeemer, reveal himself to them? Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. So the altar was for praise, for thanksgiving. This was a victory to remember. A banner is something that would be displayed as a symbol of loyalty and commitment to the Lord for his victories. It could be lifted up also as a rallying point for the people. And just two years later, when they reached the border of the Promised Land, you remember what happened? They sent the spies in, 12 spies. 10 came back and said, we can't do it, it's too hard. 
So the people were afraid, and at that point, guess who they battle again? The Amalekites. This time it didn't go so well. The Amalekites defeat them. As a result, they spent the next 38 years wandering in the wilderness. How do we see Jesus here in this section? We're further encouraged in Hebrews 9 that Jesus appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Wow! Unlike Moses, who grew tired, Jesus is our perfect mediator who always lives to intercede for us. In Isaiah 11.10, we see this word banner used again, but translated differently. It says this, In that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who shall stand as a signal, that's the same word banner, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The bloodstained cross of Jesus is a rallying point for us as believers and from believers from every nation and people group. It gives us new identity. It gives us courage and hope as we look to salvation in Jesus and his victory at the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's an old hymn that puts it this way. Christ the royal master leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banner go onward christian soldiers marching us to war with the cross of jesus going on before jesus and the cross that is our banner number th- section three good news was needed after the defeat of the amalekites the newly freed slaves are now learning to live as god's people in some ways chapter 18 is like a hinge in the book of exodus Moses tells Jethro about all the things that happened in the past. And now we're going to see next week when they actually arrive at the mountain of God and stay there, that's what's going to happen. We're going to look forward. Okay, so Exodus 18 is like a hinge. God has done some amazing things in saving the people of Israel, and Jethro has heard all about it. Even the names of Moses' sons tell the life story and the salvation of the people. I was a stranger there, but God was my helper. God was their rescuer and deliverer, just as he is for us. Then, when Moses was reunited with his unbelieving father-in-law, he shared the good news of Yahweh's deliverance of his people. Did you notice that Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, but also all the hardship that had come upon them in the way? and how the Lord had delivered them. So all the various crises, right? The the bitter water turned to sweet, the manna, the quail, water from the rock, God hearing their cries, defeating their enemies. And how did Jethro react? The Lord graciously reveals himself to Jethro and saved him. We see four responses here. We see joy and delight that Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done. And then he gives praise to God. He says, blessed be the Lord. He uses God's covenant name here, Yahweh, which was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He has a profession of faith. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. This is Jethro's testimony, focused on what God has done, his saving work that was for God's glory. 
he had seen the superior power of the Lord. And then they worshiped. They worshiped together the one true God. So how did the Lord, our Redeemer, reveal himself to them? I think this is a glimpse of how God is saving people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God is a missionary God. He is a reconciling God. In Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is us saying the joy that we have in Jesus, it's not an exclusive privilege. This joy can be yours, right? And that's why we go. That's why we send global partners. That's why we pray for our global partners. And by the way, you can join us every second Monday evening of the month as we pray together at Women in Missions for our global partners. You can talk to Jane afterwards if you want more information. But we share the things that we cherish. How do we see Jesus in this section? God has called us to share the good news of the gospel with friends and family so that they too will know that Jesus is superior to all other gods. Jesus is the name above every name. He is superior in his ability to shower mercy and grace. He's superior in showing his love and power and glory. Jesus saves, Jesus reconciles, and Jesus reunites. Final section is wisdom was needed. We see that our Redeemer is our all-wise teacher. Moses needs a little leadership help in this last section, verses 13 through 27 of chapter 18. Through the various crises that have faced the new nation of Israel, Moses has been their leader. He's indeed grown much, and he's learned a lot, hasn't he? He's truly doing valuable ministry. But the needs and demands were overwhelming, and his father-in-law noticed that he was trying to do it all himself. And he says, this is not good. I think that this might have been a hard thing for him to hear. At least I don't like to hear that what I'm, not, what I'm doing is not good. Um, Jethro is pointing out here a leadership problem. Moses would burn out if he continued to bear this burden alone. So Moses had to learn that he's not indispensable. He needed to share the load. How does Moses react? Well, Jethro presents his plan to Moses, whereby he would still be serving in his area of calling, teaching the people and leading as the representative of the Lord among the people, but that mature, capable men who feared God, who were trustworthy and honest and full of integrity, would come alongside of Moses to serve as judges. Moses could step in if the case was tough. So how did the Lord, our Redeemer, reveal himself? as a God of order, as the all-wise God who often speaks through the counsel of others, the good shepherd who enlists under-shepherds to love and care for the flock. For us, here at the North Campus, every member has a designated elder contact. Each elder has 25 to 35 households that he prays for regularly. Their task is to shepherd this flock of God here at the North Campus. Elders are going to have to give an account for those who have been entrusted to them by Jesus. So if you're not a member and you would like to learn more about becoming a member, this weekend, uh, February 25th and maybe 26th, two days, or one day, one morning, there's a membership class. It's two days. Okay. Friday night and Saturday. You can, you can ask more about it afterwards if you'd like. 
Paul wrote in Romans 12 that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. He said, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So in order to use our gifts wisely, we need to recognize our limitations and look for ways to contribute wisely. Oh, how we need God's wisdom. And sometimes that wisdom comes directly from the Bible, and sometimes it comes from other people. In closing, let me just summarize. Our Redeemer is sovereign, he is good, and he had a plan to make himself and his glory known through each crisis and each need that the Israelites faced. And in each of the four scenes this week, the Lord led his people and he provided gloriously. When they had no water, God provided a miraculous source of water sufficient to satisfy the thirst of millions camped there. Jesus is the living water who also satisfies millions. And when their enemies attacked, God protected them by his providential power. Our Redeemer is our defender, and Jesus always lives to intercede for us. And when Moses was reunited with his unbelieving father-in-law, he shared the good news of the Lord's deliverance, and God revealed himself to Jethro and saved him. The good news we have is that Jesus has saved us. He has delivered us. He has reconciled us. And we just plead with God to save our family and our friends who do not yet know and trust in Jesus. When Moses was weary and he needed wisdom for leading, God provided wise counsel through Jethro, his father-in-law. Our Redeemer is our wise teacher. I'd like to close in prayer, and I'd like to close using, the, any of you using the fighter verses? We're in Psalm 103. Some of you maybe are memorizing it, but this is where I'd like to, I'd like to pray from, from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I thank you, Lord, for redeeming my life from the pit, crowning me with steadfast love and mercy, satisfying me with good so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. You work righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, like the people of Israel. You made known your ways to Moses, your acts to the people of Israel. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You will not always chide, nor will you keep your anger forever. You do not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities or our discontent or our forgetfulness or our grumbling. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so you show compassion to those who fear you. For you know us. You know our frame. You remember our short memories. You remember that we are dust. As for us, our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear you and your righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You have established your throne in the heavens and your kingdom rules over all. 
So bless the Lord, O oh my soul. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, who is the living water. Amen.